Welcome back to another Cyclist Magazine podcast. It is Anthony Walsh again here. James regrettably isn't in the hot seat with me today, but fret not, we're in amazing company because today's guest is Jack Ultra Cyclist. I'm going to get into some of the crazy feats of endurance that Jack has accomplished in just one second before I welcome him to the podcast. But as I sit here, I am incredibly fatigued, folks. I was intending to ride Badlands last week, so I travelled over. If anyone's not sure what Badlands is, Badlands is part of this sort of new fringe movement towards adventure and gravel racing, and it's where the two of them meet. So Badlands is a 780-kilometre off-road race through Europe's only official desert just outside of Granada. And I had intended to go over and do the race. And to all intents and purposes, I did do the race, but I'll bet probably the first uh, rider in the race to DNF did not finish. I went up the first climb. Things were all looking great. I was a complete newbie. Wasn't sure what to bring. Ground mat. Do I bring a sleeping bag? Didn't bring a sleeping bag. Went with a ground mat and a bivy bag. Had all my tools, my nutrition. The training was done. And I was ready to rock and roll. Coming down the first descent and my DI2 packed up. And I was faced then with a frustrating couple of hours of seeing if it was possible to navigate this really difficult course on one gear because I couldn't get my DI2 fixed. So I tried riding at one gear, tried walking sections, tried changing the limit screws to give me different gear options. And I made the difficult choice to climb off and abandon the race on the first day. Heartbreaking decision. But I'm always one to preach on the podcast, making the best out of a bad situation. And that's what I decided to do. So I was in Granada with a friend and we decided to create and embark on a really epic trip. So we started in Granada and we rode all the way uh, north through Spain, coming through Madrid, Zaragoza, and finished the first leg in Biarritz before changing direction and finishing in, you know, what is the self-styled home of cycling these days, Girona in Catalonia. It was, I think, just shy of a 2,000 kilometer trip, but it has left me massively fatigued. And I tell you this story, it's just so... No, I'm coming from a little place of empathy when I'm listening to Jack's stories today. So it's a nice segue to introduce Jack Thompson, Jack Ultra Cyclist to the podcast. Jack has been one of the pioneers in pushing the envelope in what it really means to be an endurance athlete. And this season especially, we're going to get into some of his crazy accomplishments like the Guinness World Record for most mileage ridden in seven days. He's chased the Tour de France around France. But this year, he especially has lost his mind for all intensive purposes. He's decided to try and climb a million vertical meters in the year 2022. He is 38 weeks into this pursuit and it involves a rigorous weekly regime which includes one Everest descent every week. And if that's not enough, most of his other days, like his easy day is like two and a half thousand meters of vertical. That's a really tough day for most people and that's his easy day. This is a brilliant, insightful interview into mental health, why he got on the bike, overcoming demons, the logistical challenges of riding this many kilometers of vertical in a year, but it's all for three amazing, amazing charities. So please let me welcome to the Cyclist Magazine podcast, Jack Ultra Cyclist. Jack Ultra Cyclist, welcome to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. Right, good to see you. Good to see you, Jack. Good to chat again. How are you? 
I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Uh, you are a busy man with training and both the logistics of training. And I want to dive into some of that stuff in a minute because some of the endurance feats you have accomplished are... They, they cause quivers to go down my legs and they cause my calves to hurt even thinking about them. But before we jump into it, I want to rewind completely because I know we've chatted loads of times and you know we've done training rides and stuff together, but I don't think I've ever fully chatted to you about you know, life before cycling. What was Jack Thompson like before you had the ultra cyclist in the middle of your name? <laughs> a very normal dude and I'd still say I'm a very normal dude, but I was doing maybe more normal things. So I went to university, uh, got a degree in construction management and economics. Uh, I worked in that field for about six years, battled through depression during that time, spent a little stint in rehab with a drug addiction. What was the depression? Is that like base circumstantial or was it something you've always kind of had that darkness in you? I've, actually, I've had depression since I was about 13. So ups and downs in my mood and during school, I, I was a triathlete. Don't hold that against me. But I found having these little goals each day gave me something to focus on and a sense of achievement. And that kept my mind pretty steady. And when I went to university, I gave that away because I wanted to concentrate on studies. And I noticed that my mood really, it really slipped. And I found the highs were high, the lows were low. It was a bit of a roller coaster ride. I think just the combination of working in a field that I actually didn't really enjoy working in that construction industry in Australia. Um, I didn't really have a lot of purpose in life. I was working because I wanted the money and I thought that's what you did when you, when you grew up, when you finished school. And I just, yeah, I, did, I wasn't getting any satisfaction from life. And I turned to, to drugs and alcohol as a bit of an escape. Uh, I partied pretty hard and I, I suffered pretty hard as well. And it wasn't until my folks found a, a stash of um, basically drugs in my room, I was living at home at the time, that I uh, was told that either I needed to go to rehab or I'd basically be um, <laughs> erased from the family. And what's the line between, you know, when you're working a job and it, it's not a culture I've ever gone into, obviously Ireland and drink are inextricably linked, but drug culture is not something I've ever explored. At what point does use of drugs to turn down the volume or numb the pain from a life you're not enjoying living, where you're going to work without purpose, at what point does that become sort of therapeutic use of the drugs to just turn down that volume versus it becomes a problem? So for me, it started as a weekend thing. So I was using gear on the weekends when I was going out and that might've started as a you know Saturday night out, which turned into a, a Friday and a Saturday, a Friday, a Saturday and a Sunday, and then sort of using throughout the week as well. It became therapeutic rather than just enjoyment. So I wasn't using it to go out and party and have a good time. I was using it because that was an escape from the sort of dark and despair that had become my mind. Did you know at that stage that it's a problem or does it take somebody else to come in and shine a light on that? I didn't realize it was a problem at the time and it had sort of become very normal in my way of life or my existence and the people that I was hanging out with. And it wasn't until my old man basically pulled me aside over dinner one night and said to me, look, mate, you can't continue living like this, you know, we're not happy with the way that you're living. We're essentially putting a roof over your head. Your mum's doing your washing. We're cooking your dinner. And you're basically using your money to buy drugs. You know, either you basically stop it or you can fuck off. 
And that was a bit of a wake up call for me. I have a funny story, a good friend of mine, and he was an alcoholic. And he was trying to explain to me that the difference between a rational decision an addict makes and a non-addict makes, like you can't put the word rational beside the decisions addicts make. They make sense in an addict's head, but when you analyze them in the cold light of day or a non-addict looks at them, he says it's just a totally bizarre set of behaviors. So one story he was giving me that's just brilliantly Irish and also tragic addiction type story. He said in Ireland, the the sort of protocol for last orders at a bar is you flash the lights. So when you flash the lights, kind of the custom is you'll go up and you'll order four or five drinks and then you won't get thrown out until your drinks are gone. So he said he's absolutely bursting to use the bathroom. Like he can't hold this. Like he's bursting to use the bathroom and he's on the way to the bathroom and the lights flash. And he's like, oh no, it's last orders. I need to get four or five drinks in. So he said in his head, he couldn't reconcile these two different choices or these two different actions he needed to make. He needed to order a drink and he needed to use the bathroom. So in his head at the time, he went up to the bar and he took a piss on the leg of a parish priest who was also ordering a drink at the bar at the same time. (laughs) Killing two birds with one stone there. (laughs) Made sense in his head. Oh, God. So uh, at what point did you turn to the bike? So I returned to the bike. Once I got out of rehab, my old man said to me, look, you know, why don't you jump on a bike again? And I hated the idea. I, number one, I didn't want to conform to what he asked me to do. Number two, I'd spent a good stint of time actually at the gym trying to put on a little bit of muscle. I was a skinny guy growing up and I was adamant that I wanted to become a man, so to speak. And so the idea of riding and losing that muscle was... You know, not something that I wanted to entertain. And he kept pestering, kept pestering, and I eventually gave in. I jumped on a bike one morning, as you do in Australia, at 5.30 a.m., and I rode with him and a couple of his mates. And that sense of competition within the group, albeit I was 30 years younger than the rest of the guys, really struck a chord inside me. And I remember getting to work that day and actually jumping online and looking at where I could buy my first bike. I was I was hooked. I'd become an addict, but... Not for the drugs, for for actually riding. And I think a a lovely thing about cycling that you touched on to start with your triathlon is it's so goal-orientated. And when you look at, I'm fascinated with that thread that links high performers, you know, be they artists, musicians, actors, or athletes. It's goal-setting is something that people of high-performing caliber do quite well, whereas your general Joe civilian who just drifts kind of through life doesn't set those goals, but we're really good at that in cycling. We set goals for the week, we set goals for the day, and we set these macro goals like, you know, your uh, amount of vertical you're achieving this year. Was it nice to get back to that idea of setting goals that you'd had in triathlon and you'd missed for so long as an addict? Yeah, for sure. And I think that was one of the reasons that I I managed to stay clean because I suddenly had that that new, it, it became an obsession, but I had that desire to become better. I wanted to race the Tour de France. I wanted to, I wanted to race in general. And so I had that end goal and I decided I needed to put in steps to, or processes to try and reach that goal. And yeah, for me, that goal setting played a huge role in um, keeping me clean and, and giving me, you know, I guess a bit of a focus each day. 
And isn't this isn't the start of that journey so much fun? I can still remember because you just you literally don't know how good you're going to be. Like, because you're watching yeah. these guys in the Tour de France, but you do a session or you go through a block of sessions over a week and you get that instant feedback because you're like, you're a minute faster on the local climb. You're like, oh my God, if I do this for another 10 weeks, I'll be 10 minutes faster. Yeah. And you're comparing the best times. I remember going to Les Dos Alpes in the Alps and looking at Pantani's time on one of the climbs and thinking like, okay, I could get that next summer. Like if I if I really got the head down here, I could get that next summer. You've no idea that you kind of get this diminishing marginal returns at some point and you don't respond to training and the dream just disappears. And I think that's the beauty of whether it's cycling or whatever it is that you, if you take up a new hobby or a new skill, that progression at the beginning is what keeps it so exciting. And I think as you become better, it becomes difficult to stay as motivated or as engaged and that becomes a challenge. But I think it's an exciting challenge within itself. Yeah, it's something I've had to reimagine for myself this year. It was like, okay, I've raced a bike and had a Category 1 license for like, I think, 10 seasons now. And it's like, okay, can I find motivation to go back to the same race for an 11th time, for a 12th time? The problem with it is you end up comparing your performance this year with your prior best performances. And it just doesn't bring you any happiness. Yeah. So this year I've started just doing, saying yes to weird new stuff. I always used to fight indoor training. Now I'm like doing swift races, badlands, bike packing, got to go over to Kenya and do migration gravel race and stuff next year. And nice. you just don't have those frames of reference to compare it to. And so it's not the teeth of joy. Yeah. And I think it's a good thing, like broadening the horizon because unless you start to fail at something, you don't begin to progress again. And, you know, once you've got to that point where you're not failing anymore, it sort of doesn't become exciting because you feel like you've reached that limit. I think the failure becomes part of the growth. You must be close to dipping your hat into the Badlands-style bikepacking events. I don't know. I really like, like, to be honest, I really like competing against myself. And one of the reasons I like that is because I, I can, can only compare my progression against myself. And I think some people love comparing themselves to others. I get a lot out of comparing a performance that I've done with a performance that I've done in the past because I, it's something that I can control and I enjoy that aspect of growing mentally within myself because I know that I know the outcome is a result of what I've put in, not necessarily the outside circumstances. And so, yeah, while I've raced and done things like that in the past, I like competing against myself. I get a sense of enjoyment out of that. So never say never, but for now, no. Ten or bet you're on the start line next year. <laughs> <laughs> You've done some of the wildest events. Uh, I think the first time you came to my attention, it was the Guinness World Record attempt. It was like the, I can't remember the exact miles, it was 3,500 miles and seven, or kilometers in seven days, something along those lines. Yeah, exactly. Talk to me about that. Like, how did you dream up this idea? What's the seed that germinates an idea like that? So it was actually the year uh, of COVID, the first year of COVID, 2020. And I'd had plans, I had ideas of things that I wanted to do. And I wanted to uh, chase down the Tour de France peloton that year. And for whatever reason, because of COVID, the Tour de France didn't go ahead from memory. I think it went in September or something, was it? I can't remember. Yeah, may have done. We decided not to progress with the project that year. And so I was sitting indoors thinking, what can I do? And I wanted to do something, well, I needed to do something within Spain because we were unsure if we could travel outside of Spain. 
And I read an article on Bruce Berkeley, who was an English chap who had set the record uh, for the most kilometers written in a week. And uh, I just, yeah, did some calculations and I thought, yeah, that's beatable. I think Bruce uh, had set a, an amazing uh, record, but I sort of saw perhaps there was room for improvement. So I went about chasing that record and planned a route in the south of Spain, in Sevilla, that saw me doing, yeah, 500 kilometers a day for seven days on a basically a loop. And, uh, yeah, we managed to, to get the record, which was great. How do you do 500 kilometers in a day? Like, I'm just back from a bikepacking trip that we were talking about off-air, so finished up Badlands, went from Granada, rode 1,100 kilometers to Biarritz, and then another seven or 800 kilometers across to Girona. And I think it was the first three or four days everyone thinks when they go bikepacking it's like oh I'll do 150 kilometers and I'll stop like the thing I learned is hotels don't magically appear at the place you decide to stop so you need to get to the next town so for the first few days we're like having to do 220 to get to the next town and you're kind of zigzagging across Spain rather than going directly north as the crow would fly but the 220 kilometer day is like they're insanely hard on the body back to back. How do you ride that distance in a day? Like even in terms of how many hours you ride and what physical toll is that taking on your body? Yeah, so it's a good question. I like to break them down into percentages or we'll talk about breaking it down, but I break it down into half a day first. So I say, all right, before lunch, I've got to do 250 kilometers. And then after lunch, I've got to do 250 kilometers. So there's, it's broken down a little bit there. But then I break it down further and I say, okay, each lap is, say, 60 kilometers. So I've got to do four laps in the morning, four laps in the afternoon. And then for me, it's a matter of percentages. So once I've done one lap, I've only got three more to go. Once I've done two, I'm halfway. So then in my mind, I can convince myself that it's achievable because I apply a percentage to it, albeit it's a long day on the bike. There's no escaping that. And I think we were doing, well, it was 30 kilometers an hour was the basically the pace we were sitting on or I was sitting on uh, each day. That was the goal. So if we work that out, what's 500 divided by 30? I'll do a quick calc. So that's 16 and a half hours. <laughs> then if you factor in, you've got to stop for lunch, you've got to stop to get bottles along the way, uh, you're probably going to stop on the side of the road and complain at some point to the crew, you know, time adds up. We were averaging about four or five hours sleep every night. Uh, there is still wriggle room in there, but it is a, they're long days on the bike. And I think the first couple of days in particular are really hard because you know that there's still a long way to go. I think once you break that midway point, it becomes easier because you can see the horizon. But the segmentation of it is really interesting. And just as you were saying that, it's exactly what we've done on those 200 plus kilometer days. We'd say, okay, well, we're going to get up, we're going to ride 70 kilometers and then we'll stop at it like a fuel station, fill bottles, get cans of Coke, get an ice cream. So in your head, you're not riding 220 kilometers, you're only riding 70 kilometers. Yeah. And then you get to that 70 kilometers, you're like, okay, let's do another 70 and then we'll stop for lunch. So it's like, no matter how tired you are, it's like, oh, you can ride 70 yeah. K no matter how tired you are assuming you have a decent fitness level it really helps to mentally break it up like that and then you start mentally breaking up the days and going okay well today's tuesday let me just get as far as wednesday because i'm in this cool town and it really helps but i'm wondering with the four to five hours a night sleep obviously you cover more distance if you slept less but at what point is the trade-off not worth it like if you're sleeping for one hour a night like when does the lack of sleep feed into your physical performance the next day yeah it's a good question i 
so we actually, we finished the record with maybe 12 hours still to ride. And I decided at the time, like, we'd basically gone down to Sevilla with a crew. We had 12 hours basically free. And I decided, look, I wanted to celebrate with the crew. So we weren't under any crazy time pressure as such. I think if there had been time pressure, yeah, I could, I could have done it on less sleep and whether it was two or three hours a night, sure, that definitely has a performance. Um, it impacts your performance. I think if you can do four or five hours sleep a night, you're recovering pretty well uh, on four or five hours. I think anything less than that, it becomes detrimental to performance. How grumpy are you on four or five hours sleep? Like if I don't get eight hours sleep, just don't even come around me. I am miserable to be around. I'm actually all right. Like each morning the alarm would go off at, I forget if it was 1.30 or 2 a.m. And as soon as the alarm went off, I was up and I was downstairs having breakfast. That week was strange because it was like I was almost on rails, like a train, like everything just ran, from my point of view, very smoothly. Like the alarm went off, I got up, I had breakfast and I went. There were no real hurdles along the way aside from some horrendous weather on day four. And I don't know if that's because I was just so hyper-focused that I had that end goal of what I wanted to achieve and there was nothing going to get in the way of me achieving that. And I think that mindset really helps you to achieve you know, an impossible feat, if that's what you want to call it. But there's almost like I've, I've spoken previously podcast guests about that flow state when you get into it. It's like there's a there's a certain amount of automation to it. You're It's not a debate that you're having to win and say, okay, am I getting up? Am I doing this? It's just automatic. It just happens without even thinking and you're, you know, yeah. 60K onto the bike before you even start questioning going, oh, how did I get here again today? And sure. it's an undescribable state that some people find themselves in. I think it's, for me, it's a clue that you're getting close to mastery of your craft when you're getting that level of automation into your yeah. lifestyle. It's, a, it's like a dream state. Like when you say it, I almost feel like I'm, it sounds a bit corny, but like I almost feel like a bit of a, like a warm sensation, like a buzz. Like once you find that that state, it's, whether it's you know doing a record or, a, or an Everesting or whatever it may be, it's such a nice mindset, physical place to be when everything just happens because you're so used to it happening like that. Like I'm fascinated by the effect of sleep. I had Lael Wilcox, who won Badlands this year, the female category, on my podcast, Roadman Cycling Podcast. And Lael was saying she went for a 15-minute nap, set her alarm for 15 minutes, left her shoes and helmet on, and woke up before the alarm clock went off and felt re-energized. I was like, what sort of psychopath am I dealing with here? Like, how can you feel re-energized after 15 minutes? But the body is a fascinating tool. Oh, it is. And I've heard techniques well, here in Spain. Everybody knows the Spanish have a siesta in the afternoon. And I've heard of techniques where people will have a little uh, a shot before they, a shot of coffee before the <laughs> siesta. And 20 minutes later, the caffeine kicks in and they're up and they're ready to go. I thought we were going full Tom Simpson on it there. I'm going to start hitting. <laughs> There's no alcohol in this house. <laughs> uh, would you contemplate on a Guinness World Record, like the seven-day record, would you contemplate really nerding out on aero gains and full aero bars, skin suits, tire choices? I know it's not something you've really dug into or explored, maybe because you haven't had to, but if you were looking to set a record that, as Bradley Wiggins would say, would stand the test of time, would that be something you'd explore? Yeah, that's something I really want to look at down the track. So whether it's probably not next year, but the year after, um, looking at doing some aero optimization stuff and 
you know, jumping on a TT bike and giving that a bit of a bit of a go. I've never ridden a TT bike, and I think, yeah, I'm interested in the idea of really pushing the envelope of what's possible. Albeit that record has to be completed on a UCI legal road bike, okay. but there's other records like Christoph Strasser's uh, 24-hour record. Um, you know, there's some amazing records out there that, you know, whether they're beatable or not, I think a TT bike is the is the way to give them a nudge. Are you bothered about legacy? Like how many years you see yourself doing this for? And is there a part of you thinking, I need to make my stamp in the next X number of years? Um, I haven't put a time limit on it as such. I am conscious that you can't ride a bike forever. Uh, and I am really interested in going down the path of, actually working with businesses and trying to apply some of the, I guess, the mindset techniques that I've learned over the years in cycling and trying to apply them in a business sense uh, and in personal development. So that is sort of an avenue that I'm sort of interested in and looking at and exploring. But for now, I am very much still fixated on the bike and pushing things and, yeah, wanting to see what's possible. You say you can't ride the bike forever. Uh, we have a Saturday uh, roadman cycling group ride here in Dublin and we've one of the Irish legends named Sean Lally. He's, I think he's 82 years old at the moment Whoa. and he comes out on the group ride. But we split the group ride halfway through into a fast group and a slow group. He hangs with the fast group. And nice. You'll, you'll be in a crosswind and you'll look back and you're like 82 years old and you think to yourself... Okay. I am going, shit, this is fair depressing. There's an 82-year-old hanging on to me. Monster. <laughs> but, but if you look at him from the waist down, you'd swear he's 16. Like his legs are popping with veins, they're tanned, yeah. they're shaved. It's incredible how well you can maintain yourself when you're a professional. Like he was a professional, but when he stopped being a professional, he never stopped being a professional. Yeah, he was, I mean, I, I guess he's built these sort of, habits as well where you know riding a bike becomes sort of a way of life as opposed to a profession and kudos to him for yeah smashing away the kilometers and continuing with it and um, we were out in Girona last year and we were doing some training together and i remember talking to you about you know the guinness world records amazing chase the various uh crazy uh endurance feats you've accomplished and then to see this year the direction you took the craziness you just turned the craziness up 20 notches to the craziest of crazy years i can ever imagine like whoever was in the room that said to you this was a good idea like you just need to not talk to them anymore i'll be honest there was no one in the room that said it was a good idea <laughs> <laughs> it was a bad bad idea but you're doing it for an amazing cause and it's i think to look back on it it's going to be epic to live it right now Oh, I can feel your pain already. Talk us through exactly, you know, how you concocted this idea and what it is. And then I'm going to dig into some of the specifics on it. Yeah. So I'm 38 weeks into a one year, 52 week challenge, which is climbing a million meters of elevation and raising or looking to raise a million euros for three special mental health charities. As part of that million meters, I've set a goal of doing an Everest every single week for the year. Uh, so that gives me around half of the elevation each week. And then the rest of the elevation I'm making up, uh, essentially in the other five days of the week. So I've got six days on the bike each week, which include an Everest every other day is around two and a half, 3000 meters of elevation. And then I have a Sunday off. I am yeah, 760 odd thousand meters in, we've raised around 260,000 euros 
and I'm looking forward to January 1. It's insane, Jack. I had a beer with your coach when I was in Girona last week and I've never seen a training peaks fatigue score and CTL score as high as yours is right now. So what does a typical week look like? It's one Everest per week, every week. So when you're thinking about one Everest per week, every week, uh, you're obviously living in Girona, you're spoiled for choice with climbs, but even this has got to be stretching it a little bit. Are you having to drive to new climbs or are you doing the same climb every week? No, so I've then set myself another silly goal of not repeating an Everest twice. So I'm okay. scraping the bottom of the barrel now <laughs> where I can Everest, which is why after this podcast, I'm driving an hour and a half north to spend the night in a small mountain hut before everything tomorrow on a new climb. The grimness. So, yeah, that's been difficult, but it's also been really nice actually getting to explore the region. So, obviously, there's so many iconic climbs around Girona, but then there's so many more around Catalonia. And uh, it was a worry of mine. Would I be able to find the climbs? Where would I have to travel to? It's amazing what's on your own doorstep that you don't actually realise is there. How are you finding the climbs? Good. I've... I've sort of honed in what I need for, I guess, a perfect Everest or as close to perfect as I can get. And it's around a 10% climb. Uh, I like climbs of around 400 to 500 metres of vert per ascent. And that just allows me to break it down in my mind. I'm not having to do crazy amounts of repeats. Uh, albeit we've done, I think the most repeats I've done on an Everest is around 70. Oh, that's tough. And I'm actually going to London next month, October. And they've picked a climb which requires 180 repeats. So not looking forward to that, but it'll be a new experience. Oh, that's absolutely no fun. Like, but are you going on like a week in advance and jumping on Commute or Strava and literally segment hunting to find these climbs? Or is it just talking to friends that they're saying, hey, check out a climb out of town? Yeah, I've got one good mate, um, Bucket Belts, Craig, who's actually helped me put a list together of, you know, basically climbs in the area that I can never So that's been really helpful. I've also spoken with other people who have suggested climbs, be that on Instagram or um, just locally. And then I've spent a good chunk of time looking at maps and working it out. But it's sort of down to the point now where the day before I'm looking at a where I can climb and trying to find a hotel close and cutting it a bit fine. But yeah, it's part of it. Do they have to be road or can you do gravel as well? Uh, no, gravel's good as well. Well, not so good. It's I've done a couple of gravel ones, which are quite hard. It just adds another level of complexity because going down, you're no longer resting, you're mentally focusing and yeah, it becomes a long day out. Uh, but it, yeah, doing those gravel ones really helped to, uh, I guess, take a bit of the mental monotony out of it for me it was nice to do something different looping back to my sort of scheduling question you're one everest per week but what does the rest of the week look like in a monday to sunday type setup typically a monday uh two and a half thousand meters of climbing uh tuesday three thousand meters of climbing wednesday two and a half thousand meters i do a bit of a recovery day on thursday 1500 meters then on a Friday, I do an Everest, 8,848 metres before a recovery day Saturday, 1,000 metres and a day off Sunday. But I've actually upped it in the last two weeks. So I've basically been trying to get an extra 500 metres every day. So I'm conscious that I'm going to Australia at the end of the year and I need to build up a bit of a surplus because where I'm from is flat. The logistics around this are like, I know whenever I've put in a big training block, 
it's not actually never the training that breaks me now. Like back when you're full time, you can the limiters physical physicality and recovery. Yeah. But when you're you know when you're grown up, when you have you know conflicting demands on your time from work to family to social life to to even meal prep, it's like how much of a strain is this taken on your personal life and the sort of admin that goes around being a functioning grown up? Yeah, it's definitely become a full time job. So, well, it is a full time job. So I'm spending typically anywhere from 30 to about 35 hours a week actually riding. Um, and then I've got obviously the travel time to and from Everest, uh, stretching every night, stretching every day before I ride, visiting doctors to get blood tests to make sure my body is still healthy, normal stuff like food shopping, which essentially becomes part of work because I'm actually eating so much. And it, yeah, it's, it's, full time like I don't have time for anything else and that that's been really hard this year is a party uh, you know given that what you spoke about at the very start of the podcast you know you started cycling at a point when you were closing the door on a chapter of you know depression social isolation a lot of dark thoughts has there been any party on this journey where you've had so much time to self-contemplate going this is like stupidity this is so much alone time it's so much hardship that there's a danger of it bringing me back to the very thing i'm avoiding for sure 100 percent. i went through a very dark phase would have been just after the halfway point so june july and i hadn't raised i hadn't raised much money at all and i was out there battling day after day in the spanish heat and i sort of questioned why i was doing it I think for me, and we talked about this offline beforehand, the biggest achievement for me this year isn't actually climbing the million metres. And I mean, raising the money is great, but it's not my own personal achievement. The biggest thing I've learned is ways of dealing with very difficult, lonely times in my mind. And for that, like I wouldn't change anything this year. I will finish this year and I'll have basically a tool set of um, skills that I can apply to other areas of life or to next year's challenges or wherever they may be, I'm really thankful. I think you have to suffer to realise how good it is. And without suffering, you don't actually learn anything. And so for me, that very difficult time was it was a blessing. Yeah, that's a brilliant philosophy. I had a guest on my podcast a while back. His name was Colin O'Brady, uh, a very Irish-sounding name for an American yeah. man. But uh, he rode, he was the first one as part of, I think, a four-man team to row across Drake Passage and Drake Passage is notoriously difficult to row. No one had ever completed the, the trip across. And he spoke about some of the intricacies of the trip. So at parts of the trip, the waves were so bad, they had to lock themselves into a crawl space. So it's four guys basically spooning inside a crawl space. There's no room to do anything other than be in a total like kind of cocoon, spooning into the guy next to you. The weather's so bad that everybody's puking on each other you can't get out to use a bathroom so everybody's having to defecate like without yeah. being able to move at all. So he said it was the most vile experience a human could ever have. So he took that experience and then when the waves stopped, the sea became calm, they got to the far side of Drake Passage, the sun came up and just illuminated the journey that they were on. He said that moment was all the more beautiful 
because of that shit experience that he'd had. And if he hadn't had that terrible, horrible experience and he was just, you know, dropped in by helicopter to watch that sun, that sun rising, he wouldn't have appreciated it. But because he'd had the hardship, he could appreciate the good times. I feel like you're going to enjoy, if you get through this, which I still think is a big if, (laughs) if you get through this, you're, I think you're going to love the bike even more than ever. Yeah, for sure. And like, even now, like I get on the bike and I still, I love being on the bike. Like I don't hate it at all. I think that perspective makes it more enjoyable. And so, yeah, next year I'll still be riding, I can confirm. And what are you eating on an Everest? Because, you know, if I was coaching an athlete and getting them to go down and do an Everest, you're talking about carbohydrate consumption based on the athlete's body weight. You're looking at what zones they're spending their time in. But when you're doing it every single week, that's got to take a backseat to what can I stomach? What can I actually get down the hatch here without it depressing the mind off me? Like I, I think I've mastered Everesting nutrition <laughs> for me anyway. <laughs> I basically have a little Tupperware container that I prepared a half an hour before we jumped on the call because I'm Everesting tomorrow. And every single week now, I'll basically take the same thing. So it's I'm working with goo. And I'll eat 16 gels in a day. I'll eat two Stroop waffles and I'll eat two packs of energy chews. I'll have two caffeine gels, one straight after lunch, one midway through the afternoon. And I'll have some rice at lunch. That's all I eat. I'll have a couple of cans of cool drink throughout the day, but I can sustain myself on gels and uh, energy chews. <laughs> Simple, it's easy. And if you're doing these events solo, how are you figuring out the hydration on it? Just leaving cooler packs in a shaded area with bottles in them? Yeah. So typically I'll drive to an Everest, so I'll have the car at the bottom and I'll have a couple of, I um, don't know what you call them, eskies we call them in Australia. It's like a cool box. Yeah. Uh, typically I'll have six litres of water um, or energy mix prepared and every two hours I'll grab a bottle and off I'll go. Um, so I've really sort of fine-tuned it. Um, I've got the six bottles ready to go. I'm not mixing it when I get there. Uh, it's very much in, out, up, down, up, down, another bottle, in, out, up, down, up, down. It's become like a, a bit of a machine or a bit of a process. But, yeah, I think for anyone that is undertaking an Everest, the biggest advice I can give you is just to eat and eat and drink and drink. You can't eat or drink too much. I see with friends who are doing sort of charity events on cycling and otherwise, when they're doing a one-day event, it really like galvanizes the friends group and everyone comes together helping out with stuff. But then when the events drift into like being a week, being longer than a week, it can have the opposite effect. Instead of galvanizing the group, it can actually isolate you a lot from your friend circles. Is your experience more in the former or the latter? I definitely, like I have close friends here. I have an amazing partner here. Um, and I have family back home that have all been very supportive throughout. I think you definitely realise who your real friends are. Um, I have learned who my real friends are through you know, a year-long event. I think it's difficult to keep people engaged for a year. Everybody has their own things happening, um, their own goals, ambitions, work, life balance. And so it is difficult to sort of sustain that year-round. But I think that's my... I've brought that on because I've chosen to do something over a year. I think had it been for a week or a month, 
it would have been easier to sort of keep the engagement, not just within my friends group, but my sort of the greater community. And I think the timing of this podcast is brilliant because this podcast is going to go live on Thursday and you will be in the middle of, which I think is your best idea for engagement this year, your Sherpa week where you're bringing together a bunch of journalists, some influencers, which is the dirty word we don't mention. And you're going to bring them on the experience with you and they're going to ride hopefully every kilometer, which hopefully no one takes you out on a sketchy descent. Hope not. So the idea is, yeah, like you've said, I'm riding around 20,000 meters of elevation each week. So we thought, you know, to give people or to put this into perspective, we're encouraging other riders to basically go out and ride 20,000 meters in a week and see what it actually feels like, see the toll it takes on your body. Not because we're trying to compare anything, but just because, you know, it's interesting for people to actually see what it feels like to ride 20,000 meters in a week. And I think that's one of the hardest things we've found this year is putting into perspective what I'm trying to achieve in order to draw in those uh, donations. So I've set myself this ridiculous goal, but it's hard to put it into perspective. What does that mean to somebody without them going and, you know, giving it a go or trying it? And so the idea of Sherpa Week is to give people an insight into what my year looks like in the hope that we can draw in some more donations. And have you picked a climb for Everest for Sherpa Week? We have actually. So we've done an early selection. So um, to climb out near a lot, the name of it escapes me, um, Bracons, Calder Bracons. Oh, don't think I've ridden it. I've never ridden it before myself. Uh, I mate Craig suggested it. I think it's quite a good one from what it uh, appears online. And uh, we'll go out there and tackle that one together and with anyone else who fancies joining. Uh, so, yeah, it'll be a good week. So the best way to get in contact with you, Jack, or the best way to make donations, is it through your link in your Instagram account? Yeah, so there's a link in the Instagram account for donations. But if anyone wants to get in touch, just, yeah, shoot me a DM. I'm pretty um, accessible and always keen to chat. What is your Instagram? It's it's just Jack Ultra Cyclist. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a it's a motivating account for a lot of different reasons. You know, the charities you're working with and promoting are a brilliant cause, and to sustain that level of you know competition all the way through a year is remarkable. But I think there's a lot for a lot of reasons to follow. Yeah, I know a lot of days when I've been sitting in the house thinking, oh, looking out the window, do I want to put kid on? Do I not want to put kid on? I'll flick up Instagram. I'll see you putting out a cool video, one of your Everest. And I'm like, come on, sort yourself out. You're doing a two-hour <laughs> insurance ride. This lad has like, you know, 8,000 meters of climbing today, hard enough. And so it's, it's brilliant and it's motivating and it's inspiring. And I think, you know, it's difficult to celebrate, you know, an entire year for people. But I hope... Uh, at the end of the year, you look back with a lot of pride on what you've done because you're inspiring a lot of people and you're raising a lot of money for good causes. Thanks a lot, mate. I appreciate those words. Jack, thanks for chatting. Mate, good to see you. Chat soon.